Alright, so this morning, um, I think you guys have been in a series on Ecclesiastes, right? And uh, I told Pastor Josh, uh, no way, not right now, not for me, not this morning. Um, and actually, with, with, uh, I'm, I'm, what I'm doing here, I'm kind of trying to get two birds with one stone. I'm preaching through, and we're kind of studying through the Gospel of Mark. Um, in our church. And so I told my, the, our, our small church plant team, I said, Hey, uh, I'm going to be preaching on this church on Sunday. I know a lot of them are going to be out of town. So I don't know if they record this or not, but I'll make sure that I have this message for you as well. So this is kind of to both congregations. Um, but we're going to be in Mark and, and, um, we, we're in the very beginning. We're in chapter one. We studied verses one through eight. So today we're going to be nine through 11. And, um, it really just kind of comes down to who is Jesus, his identity. Um, it's interesting. I don't, I do not watch, I think it's called America's Got Talent. I had a video that was supposed to be prepared, but I messed up in getting the wrong format, so I was going to show it to you. But has anyone seen the young girl, Grace Vanderwall? It's all been all over social media over the last couple of days. I see some nodding heads. Okay. So this little girl came before Simon Cowell and Heidi Klum and, Scary Spice, I forget what her real name is, the Spice Girl, um, and uh, Howie Mandel. And um, she she goes up there, and you know, 12-year-old girl, no one's expecting this, and, and she starts to sing an original song. Usually they sing covers, and then the judges, you know, kind of judge them or whatever. And so I'm a, I'm a big guy, you know, I'm 6'3", 250, 255, you know, I play a lot, something like that. And you know, I, I, don't, I don't tear up easily, but just watching this young girl... Um, sing her heart out of this song that she wrote in front of every, and everybody just went crazy. And there's that golden, that golden button thing that, uh, Howie Press that sends her immediately to the live rounds, I guess, whatever it is. Um, and so all that happened, and I'm watching this unfold, and I shared it with our small group, um, and then there, you know, there were tears and all that, but what was interesting was that the song that she sang, the song that she sang was, it was titled, I Don't Know My Name. I Don't Know my name. And it was a song all about identity. And so as she's kind of singing it at first, you know, just singing, I don't know my name and some line about her sister's friend who's kind of questioning why she's changing herself and her looks and everything. And all of a sudden, like she just takes it up to level 10. She just kind of blows this crescendo of now I know my name. And it was interesting, you know, she finishes the song, everyone's going crazy. And Howie Mandel sitting there and he's, he's like, you know, he's like looking back at the crowd just amazed at this girl. And he says, it's interesting because what you're singing is so true, but also so wrong. Because yes, you're 12 years old and you're young and you have this talent and you're trying to figure things out in your life so you, you don't know who you are. But now, now you're singing in front of all these people, it's changed in an instant. Now you know who you are. And the question of identity, it's something that a lot of times... Uh, we may not even think about it. It plagues us. Who are we? It, it, the, who you are kind of determines what, what you do, right? So we're constantly questioning and constantly evaluating who we are. It's career, school, right? Who you are as a parent, who you are as a grandparent, as a Christian. And, and, and how you answer that question, your identity, will kind of determine the choices that you make in your life. So as a Christian, here's the thing. Foundationally, who you are, right, which determines what you do, the principle, the foundation of who you are is on who Jesus is. Because how you view Jesus as a Christian, maybe here this morning you may not want anything to do with Jesus. Well, we welcome you. Thank you for coming here this morning. Um, hopefully you'll get something out of this anyway. 
And because the question of identity plays into whether you're a Christian or not, right? We all ask that question. We all try to figure out, just like this little 12-year-old girl, and it's not just like, okay, I know, I now know who I am. I mean, it's a, it's a constant thing. And as things barrage you in life, your identity gets shaken and questioned, right? So, so, but to a Christian, the foundational question, if you're someone who really believes that this guy rose from the dead, and conquered sin and death for you, and now you live your life for Him. If you really believe that, then who this guy is is going to determine who you are. Because your life, as, as we as Christians say, is hidden in Him. So who's Jesus? That's the question that I'm going to try to foundationally answer today in Mark. So let's go Mark chapter 1. We're going to be... In verses 9 through 11. Three verses, that's it. Someone told me earlier this morning they're used to more like 20 pa- twenty verses in the passage. Nothing on Pastor Josh, if that's, you know, that's his thing. But we're going to be in, in three verses today. Mark chapter 1, 9 through 11. You guys with me? You ready? Bible's ready to go? Maybe it's on the screen, I don't know. Let's do this. The baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. That's it. That's all we're kind of focusing on today. So what's going on here? It's interesting when my our small group said, Hey, let's read through the Gospel of Mark. And I'm thinking as a seminary trained guy like, Okay, you know, that's an interesting one. It's the shortest gospel by far, um, you know, and, and there's just not that much like kind of meat in there. I mean, it, it, for instance, this passage, three verses, you go to the, you know, Matthew's gospel, and there's a lot more going on, um, in which we're going to look at, but like, why, why choose to study Mark? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think more of the basis of the firsthand account, it was written by a guy named John Mark, right? So back then, his name was actually John Mark. Uh, a lot of times in that intertestamental period in the early first century, people had two names, especially Jews. They had a Hebrew name, John, and a Roman, like Greek, Hellenistic name, Mark. So, John, Mark. And for reference, this is the same John Mark who wrote this gospel, who accompanied the Apostle Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13 from the Antioch church. So when the Apostle Paul, the famous Apostle Paul, is sent on his first missionary journey, and Barnabas is accompanying him, there's this guy in there, you see in Acts 13, that John that goes with him, John Mark. This is the same guy that wrote this gospel. And later, he's the one that actually became the source of contention among them. For no one knows why, but he goes with them on that first missionary journey. And then later on Acts 13, you see that he turns around and comes right back to Jerusalem. So in in the ensuing chapters, Paul and Barnabas are like having an argument about the second journey because Barnabas, who happens to be John Mark's cousin, wants to take his cousin. And Paul, probably because John Mark left them earlier, doesn't. Later, no worries, church, they reconcile. In Colossians at the very end, Paul writes to the church. He was with Mark and he sends him back and says, welcome this brother. Um, so there was reconciliation. But this, I just want you to see, this guy, he's kind of dotted around the New Testament, and that's who this is. It's also a historic understanding. We don't have a lot of biblical basis on this, but the early church fathers believed, um, so I'm talking first century, that this guy, John Mark, accompanied Peter in almost all of his travels, and he was actually the one that wrote down Peter's 
like experiences with Jesus himself. So, so you have like a first-hand account of what's going on. And that's why if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right, you got four versions of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John's kind of in its own category, right? But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what known as the synoptic gospels because there's a lot of passages that have striking similarities. And so they had to have like shared a source or something that, that, you know, maybe Matthew and Luke you know, use something, some type of source to kind of fill in the gaps in their gospel account. And so many people believe that Mark, Mark's gospel was that source. That Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel to kind of fill in the gaps on their own. It was the first one that was written. So that's all going into understanding, okay, what, what's going on here? And when you, when you see that, how like Mark wrote his gospel it's kind of like an episodic thing that's why he he skips over so much there's no narrative of jesus birth here right we love luke one and two and you see the genealogy of jesus and you know you see bethlehem and the baby and all that stuff not mark just like skips over all of that and goes right to when jesus starts his ministry and so it's kind of like a you know, watching like The Walking Dead or something. I mean, we're we're jumping into season one, episode two here. That's how Mark. That's how Mark writes. That's how he writes. I just, you you got to see like the kind of episodic nature that he writes, and it's the shortest gospel account. So here we go. In verse nine, that's where we are this morning. He cuts right to the chase. It says, "In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth." Right? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by the John and the Jordan. So what are they, what are they talking about in those days? What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the preceding eight verses. Mark starts his gospel, very important, talking about John the Baptist. Right? Baptist church, and most of us know who that is. John was kind of the forerunner to Jesus, right? Proclaimed from the Old Testament that someone was going to come, telling of the Messiah. He's preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. All that jazz, that's who John is. So, so the people in Jerusalem, they're withdrawing to the wilderness, right? And they're meeting John the Baptist in the Jordan River. What he's doing is strange, by the way, because there were some hand washing rituals and stuff like that back then, but he's immersing people in the water, bringing them up, and it's kind of a symbolization for repentance of their sins. So this is all going on. So in those days, that's what verse 9 is saying. As John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan and proclaiming that the Messiah is coming, in enters Jesus. Season 1, episode 2. And Jesus, Mark skips over the first 30 years of Jesus' life and cuts straight to the baptism for his introduction. Now why is that? Why is it that, that he skips over the birth and all that narrative and goes right to Jesus' baptism, which is what we're talking about today? Well, here it is. We said earlier that, the, earlier that to have a crucial understanding of your own identity, who you have to answer the question, who am I? We have to understand Jesus' identity. And here in this passage, Mark drops two huge bombs on who Jesus is. Here's the first one. At Jesus' baptism, He's crowned. He is crowned. It's a coronation. You're like, Alex, what are you talking about? All right, bear with me. As soon as Jesus comes up out of the water... Three very important things happen that give us a certain introduction into who he is, right? The heavens are torn open. Mark is the only one that uses that language. Heavens are torn open. The Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends upon him, and God speaks directly to Jesus. All right, let's look at these three things one at a time. Number one, it's in verse 10. The heavens are torn open. It says, and when he came up out of the water, immediately, that's another one of Mark's favorite words, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
See, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there was this prophet named Isaiah. Most of you have heard of him. And he prophesied that the heavens would rend, which literally means to tear and rip, and that the long-awaited Messiah would descend. If you want to look, Isaiah 64 verse 1 says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Other Jewish traditions sought to elaborate on this imagery that Isaiah wrote. Um, there's this, this like book thing called the Testament of Levi. It was written about 250 years before Christ even came. We're talking way, way, way before Jesus showed up on the scene at this baptism, okay? And this is what it said. It said that the heavens will be opened, and from the temple of glory, sanctification will come upon him. With a fatherly voice, as from Abraham to Isaac, and the glory of the Most High shall burst forth upon him, for he shall give the majesty of the Lord to those who are his sons in truth forever. So there was a a strong messianic sense of when this Messiah, the promised king, right, that would sit on David's throne would come, that the heavens would open. A coronation for the coming king. And so we see that. The heavens are torn open. It's exactly what Isaiah was talking about. But that's not all that happens. That's not all that happens. Second, the Spirit descends upon him. Look at verse 10. It said, immediately he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Like a dove. Now you won't find too much of this in the Bible, but some of the Qumran findings testify to the belief that in the eschatological, I'm sorry, hold on, I gotta say this right, eschatological, meaning end times, age, right, the ushering in of Jesus' kingdom, that the Messiah would be endowed with God's own Spirit. So Mark skips to this event in his version of the Gospel because Jesus' public ministry begins after this event. Think about it. If you read the other Gospels, you'll see the early accounts of Jesus' birth and maybe of, of, of Mary and Elizabeth and you know, all that stuff going on. But his actual public ministry didn't begin until the baptism. You want proof of that? Later on in Mark, Jesus is being questioned after tearing up the temple. right? And they ask him, "In what authority do you do this? And what does Jesus point back to? They ask him the question, what authority? Where, where are you getting your identity from, essentially? He points back to his baptism. He asks them, well, by what authority did John the Baptist do his? And they couldn't answer. They didn't want to answer because they knew that it would like set them up for a failure in the question. So he says, then neither do you know by my authority. He's putting it right there. It all goes back to baptism, and that's when his ministry started. So the Spirit descends on him. Or... Uh, probably, honestly, a probably better Greek interpretation is into him, that the Spirit descends into him. And thirdly, the third incident that gives us ins- insight into Jesus' identity is, of course, the declaration from heaven. Look at verse 11. It says, And a voice came from heaven, and it said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Once again, a whole bunch of Old Testament, right, prophesied imagery here. In Isaiah 49, the prophet writes of the servant of the Lord who is to come. Talking about Jesus. And verse 3 of that passage is a very apparent reference. This is a direct reference to what Isaiah was talking about. It says, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. It's like the same thing. Or Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. 
So Isaiah writing about the chosen servant of God. And you see the same exact language here in Mark. The voice from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. My soul delights in you. And finally we have, if you want any more evidence of a coronation of the coming messianic king, look at Psalm 2. Right, this psalmist it's it's actually titled the reign of the Lord's anointed, and the whole at the time that it was written, the whole thing was about giving the Israelites, the Hebrews, a promised hope in the Davidic David king and his line, because God promised David that on his throne well, he would place a descendant that would reign forever and ever and ever. So a descendant of David would establish his throne, and that the hope of blessing would irrevocably be tied to that kingship. Right, Psalm 2, verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the first thing, the first bomb that Mark drops on us to understand Jesus' identity is that he's been crowned. He has been crowned at his baptism. God makes it very clear in these little itty-bitty three verses, that Jesus is the coming, reigning Messiah, promised of old, coming to eradicate sin and death and sit at the right hand of the throne of God. Now you're sitting there and you're thinking, Alex, what in the world does this matter? Right? Why does this matter? Well, the truth is that for many, the royal robes of Jesus have been traded in for a professor's tunic, or maybe a tank top and some flip-flops, or maybe dusty pages in a history book. Right? Culture has done well in minimizing, not just unchristians, but Christians alike, minimizing the Holy Son of God to personalities other than a true Savior and King. John the Baptist reminded his audience of this in Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism. So, what's going on here, Matthew's version of it, says this. This is what John the Baptist told, told the people. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming, pointing to Jesus, after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Basically, what John the Baptist is saying, he's understanding the kingship of Jesus. He's understanding the reign of Jesus. He's understanding the exaltation and the glory of Jesus Christ. Not that he's just some rabbi or teacher or even lowly prophet. No, he is the promised king, and he's coming. And so, John the Baptist, take note, he's not kind of just suggesting to these people, he's warning them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, and the, the, the one that's coming after me, he's mighty. He's mighty, and if you don't put your faith and trust in him, then there's no hope for you. Now, that's good news and that's bad news. If you're in here this morning and you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's bad news. It's bad news because according to what John is saying, you are the chaff that will burn with unquenchable fire. I know that's harsh language, but it's biblical language. And it's true. That if you have not trusted in the King, the reigning King who is glorious and holy, that His wrath is still on you. And so I stand here, and I'm sure so does the church, to ask you to 
Turn away from your sin and repent and trust in the One, the only One who has the power and the glory to save you. Um, if, if, you th- if you're sitting here right now this morning, you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, ever. And you know the weight of your sin upon you. I ask you, after service, come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the leaders of the church. Come and talk to the person that brought you here this morning. I'm sure with joy they would love to share with you the joy and riches of the Gospel. That's the bad news. But it's also good news. It's good news for for us who are in Christ and those who are being called to Him. Look guys, our our city is a a wreck right now. Right? I had a young girl, I believe she was a believer, shot just down the street. And now last night, a multiple shooting in downtown. I'm going to tell you, the only hope that we have The only hope that this city has is Jesus. Is the hope and the light of the Gospel pushing back what's dark in this community. He's the begotten Son of God. He reigns over all the principalities. Listen, you may be here this morning and just feel so beat up in life like everything is going wrong, everything's got you down, and it's hard to have faith. And so, in those times, you know what happens? It's easy for us to trust in things that seem more tangible, right? We start to put our faith in our own power. We start to put our faith in our own education or or career or whatever it is. It's so easy to begin trusting other things. And what do we do when we do that? When we trust something, when we say, okay, you know, my, my finances validate me. I have this, so I'm okay. That's my authority. Or, you know, my grandchildren and their successes, or my children and my grandchildren, look how wonderful they are. They validate me. Right? What you're doing is you're giving authority over to those things. They're not bad in and of themselves. Or my schoolwork, or my boyfriend, or my hot girlfriend, or whatever it is. Right? You're giving authority over to those things and you're trusting them. So maybe we all need a reminder of Jesus' identity. Because it speaks into our own identity. We are not followers of a teacher who simply instructs us from a lectern, right? A lot of history talks about Jesus in that light. And, and whether or not you are here to admit it, you know, a lot of us, especially as Christians, we get in that mode, don't we? Jesus isn't a king in your life. He's just a teacher. You read, and then you live your life apart from living under the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ. Right? You're your own king. We're not followers of a teacher who just instructs. We're not followers of a common friend who has no authority in your life whatsoever like you give service to, right? We're not followers of a celebrity who doesn't think of the problems in our life. We are followers of a reigning, eternal King. So listen, maybe the reason that you're so prone to worry, like if that's you, like you wake up every day and you're just, you just know, have anxiety and, and worried about how you're going to pay the next thing or what this person thinks about you, right? Or career advancement, or parenting flaws, like you know, and it just it just eats away at your soul because your child is just disobedient; they're not listening to you, and and you take it personally, and you don't want it to reflect on other people. Or whether or not your peers accept you, or who's going to be president, right? It's anxiety and worry about everything going on around us. Well, maybe the reason for that is because you have the wrong view of Jesus. Christians, is that your king? placing your authority and kingship elsewhere. If Jesus is simply someone you pay homage to on Sunday morning, and then you go on through the rest of your week without giving Him much thought, then you need a reminder of His kingship. 
And there is no greater reminder than the gospel itself. For Jesus made his authority most manifest after the resurrection. Right? In Acts 2, Peter talks about this at Pentecost. He, he preaches to the people, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, King David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Right? King David, the one that a lot, at that time a lot of them worshiped still, is in the ground. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, right? Promise David that your throne's gonna continue. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he had not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, this King, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Everything that's happening at the baptism of Jesus, Peter talks about in Acts 2. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Listen, folks, if Jesus has been victorious over life and over death and over sin itself and now sits at the right hand of God, as the exalted Lord, then any problem that you face in life is no problem at all for our King, for my King. No problem. Oh, we make problems, don't we? But it's not a problem for Him because He's King. So you got to ask yourself, is He King in your life? Your worries, your anxieties, your fears, your doubts, your faithlessness, your lack of joy, your frustration, your bitterness, your anger, your lust, your misjudgment. No problem is too big for our King. Do you see the good news in that, folks? That you have a lion, not a kitten. You have a lion standing behind you. But do you believe that? Are you under His authority? Do you submit to His Lordship? It's what frees you from worrying so much and caring so much about what other people think of you. He even gives us the answer for our worries. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells His disciples what? To seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then everything else that you worry about is going to be taken care of. Either by direct supplication, either He's going to give it to you, all these things will be added unto you, or He's going to take away the idol in your heart. Either way, it's going to lead to joy. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. This is Jesus talking, Matthew 6, and all these things will be added unto you. But here's the thing. To seek first the kingdom, the kingdom, you got to recognize the king. Right? Identity. You want to seek first the kingdom of God and have Him take away your worries and fears and anxieties. You have to recognize Jesus as your king. There's no kingdom without a king. It doesn't make any sense. Right? Do you recognize Jesus as your king? Now we said earlier that Mark drops two bombs on us, right? That was number one. Jesus is crowned at His baptism. But there's two bombs. And honestly, there couldn't be a greater juxtaposition, I think, in all of life. At the baptism of Jesus, baptism of Jesus, He is crowned, but He is also condemned. Last night, I was uh, tucking in. Well, I don't really tuck in because she's up on a top bunk and that's just too much work. But I was, I was saying goodnight to my seven-year-old daughter, and um, Gianna. And 
uh, you know, she was, you know, putting on her back brace and all that stuff, getting ready for bed. And she says, Daddy, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, the baptism of Jesus. And she looks at me with the craziest, just like, what? And I'm, I'm reading her and it kind of clicked in my mind what she was thinking. She just with this confused look on her face, she goes, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. Right? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that actually makes sense. Historic and biblical Christianity teaches what? That Jesus is sinless. Right? Hebrews 4.15 says He was without sin. In baptism, we established this earlier, in the form of John the Baptist, the immersion, symbolizes the washing away of sin. So why does Jesus need to be baptized? Have you ever thought about that? Why? My seven-year-old daughter saw Wait a minute. Daddy, are you for real? Why does Jesus need to be baptized? That doesn't make any sense. Seven years old. Why? Matthew's account of the baptism gives us more insight. Matthew three thirteen to 15 Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. So it's, it's the same story, just in a different writer. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So even, even John the Baptist recognizes what my daughter and many of us recognize. Jesus baptized. John says, I need to be baptized by you. That's like me standing here and Taylor Swift coming up to me and saying, asking for my autograph. Like what? I should be getting your autograph. Why are you asking me for mine? I'm, I'm nobody. Wait a second, you know. But herein lies the breathtaking splendor of the love of the gospel. Jesus is baptized to identify, identify with the sins of his people. Do you get that? Feel that? Your sins, your greed, your selfishness, your vanity, your lust, your pride, your proneness to wander from God, your faithlessness, your idolatry, your disobedience. Jesus, the one without sin, willingly identified Himself. He ties Himself willingly to you and to me. The crowned King, knowing every sin you would ever commit, says, He's mine. She's with me. Last year, my wife and I, um, we saw on Facebook that a church uh, the, of a pastor that I know and love very deeply, Jared Davis, One Hope Church out in Waterford. Um, they were holding a banquet of some type, some type of like potluck thing. And it was posted publicly on Facebook. So we're like, okay, let's, let's go. Let's go support. You know, I'm a church planner. He's a church. Let's go support. And you know, they're a successful church. So we show up and we didn't know it was a potluck actually. We just thought it was like a banquet thing. So we show up and there's all, people are bringing in food and we're, we're rolling with a family of five, you know. And I got hungry kids. So I'm feeling bad. I'm getting out of the car. And I'm like, dang, Shan, we didn't bring anything. Like, what are we going to do? Let's just, let's just go in there. So we're going in there, and people are setting up food, and we, we sit at a table, we take up a whole table. And, um, you know, people are coming like, oh, like, who are you? And, and there were some people that I know from the church, and one of them was like laughing, like, what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, they posted it on Facebook. Like, you know, it turns out that it was a church-only event. Just like a church-only thing, and we just showed up and like crashed the party. <laughs> so, you know, I know... I know Pastor Jared, he came and said, hey, you guys, how you doing, Alex? So good to see you. You know, stay, 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 eat and all that, you know. And But uh, we're feeling bad. We're like, 
You know, we're taking up a whole table. I got all my kids and, you know, all this food. And we're like, oh my gosh. Like, and so I just made the dumb choice to say, like, well, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. Let's, let's leave quietly. And, um, you know, I know the church building well. So we go to sneak out. I'm, I'm dead serious. We go to sneak out the back door so that we're not like crashing this church's party and go back to our van. So we, we do it. We actually literally, I take my children. We're hiding and we sneak and we're going out, you know, and we're going towards our van. And I hear, you know, like running and I hear Alex Alex and Shannon's already kind of like gone ahead of me with the kids and I look back and Pastor Jared the pastor in his suit and like really expensive nice shoes and all that stuff he's running me down he's chasing me in the parking lot I've never seen anything like it and he he stopped me and he said what are you doing no you are going to come inside and sit down and then after that he pushed by me and ran to the van where my wife was putting, locking our children in, in their, you know, car seats and all that. And he's like literally opening the door and pulling them out, right? Like, no, you will stay. You are welcome here, right? And he pulls us back to the table. We sit down and then he gives us a shout out from the stage. Church planner Alex and his family love everything they're doing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, from the stage. I felt like I didn't belong, you know? I was, you know, kind of dumb at the time. I just felt like kind of embarrassed, you know. I don't belong here. I don't belong. Do you feel like that sometimes? Just in life, right? You're not welcome. You don't belong. And then I, I got chased down. I got run down. And my wife and my kids. Why? Because he was willing to tie himself, his identity to me. Folks, that's the gospel. That's what Jesus' baptism means for us. You could feel like the most terrible sinner or the loneliest person on the earth. doesn't matter. Like an outcast. doesn't matter. Jesus willingly, sinless, but willingly chose to link your name to His. The righteous, crowned King identifying Himself with you. Saying, you are mine. You are with me. Mark later explains it this way. One of my favorite verses. 10.45, Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. This aspect of Jesus' identity is crucial, crucial for living a life of joy in Christ. Your Savior was not just crowned, which is important, authority, but He was condemned in your place. At the baptism, He willingly went in the water, sinless, think about that, but willingly identified himself with the sins of his people. He was crowned and he was condemned. When you feel alone and misunderstood and calloused and bitter, you may be forgetting that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, right? Revelation has looked upon your face and declared, they're with me, they're mine. And that is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus it's not just that He did it once. He is continually, folks. No matter what you are doing in life, no matter how far removed you think you are, He, if you choose to put your faith and trust in Him, He is continually identifying Himself with you. No matter where you are. He's always there, always ready to accept you if you trust in Him. There's the great juxtaposition. Jesus was condemned for your every sin so you can rest in His grace with His righteousness having your, earned your salvation. Not your own righteousness. His righteousness. But He also was crowned, which gives Him the authority to lovingly discipline you while enabling you to trust 
His reign over the worries of your own life. His identity forms your identity. So the question is, how will you see Jesus today?